from PRX. The following Studio 360 podcast contains explicit language. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. When I went to Cooper Union, I was uh, an art student. Um, I had absolutely no interest in architecture, and I was painting and doing sculpture and photography, and then I became more and more interested in film. That's the architect Liz Diller, who is ultimately one of the most important architects working today. She and her professional and personal partner, Rick Scafidio, are the MacArthur geniuses who helped design Los Angeles's new Broad Art Museum and Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art. And in New York City, they've just significantly improved Lincoln Center and were instrumental creating the High Line, the miraculous elevated park that was built on a mile-and-a-half-long stretch of defunct elevated railroad trestle. But 40 years ago, Diller was more interested in movie-making than architecture. Something about making films really resonated with me, and I started to make small films. I started to befriend filmmakers, and um, I just became more and more interested in it. And I simply pursued uh, some courses in film, but in the end, I got seduced into doing architecture. And what I liked about the discipline was that there was a discourse. In the 1970s, Diller was part of a creative scene devoted to blurring the boundaries between various creative disciplines. To me, architecture didn't mean making buildings. It meant space, spatial relations, conventions of space of the everyday. An architectural career might be doing installations or doing collaborations with other artists. Um, So we were looking at movies. We were looking at art. And we were thinking about how space-making and certain other kind of social and cultural practices go together. And the 70s was a fantastic time. So she went on to become, and I really hate this term, but if anybody deserves it, it's her, a architect. But she's still a big-time film buff and would-be filmmaker. I still have a, this itch to make a feature film. And somehow, maybe at one point in my life, I would love to just take a pause for five years and make a film. But I don't know if that's in the cards. So as a, as a somebody who's thought a lot about film and studied film and is a great architect, you clearly are our ideal person to talk about some instances where architecture is represented in movies. Um, and you gave us a list of some of your favorite movies about architects and architecture. Um, the first film on your list is one of my absolute personal favorites, Jacques Tati's Playtime, which is a, a kind of charming satire in its depiction of modernist architecture in, in, in Paris in 1967 when modernist architecture, I guess, was kind of at its height. Um, we're going to watch a scene uh, where uh, Tati's character that he plays, I think, in all of his movies, uh, Monsieur Hulot, right, mm-hmm. is flummoxed by the architecture of a new modernist office building. And there's not a lot of dialogue, so if you can be our voiceover narrator to tell the listeners what's happening, that would be good. Oh, yeah, so... So here we see Mr. Hulot, and he's overlooking uh, an area of office cubicles. 
and trying to identify someone that he's supposed to meet. And it is in this extremely alienating 60s space. And um, he's now going down a, a kind of corridor between cubicles. He's seen uh, this man that he wants to interact with, and he's looking for him. And and we're seeing him just totally confused. He's, he's a very... Um, Funny, sort of, uh, his choreography yes. is really, really wonderful. And he's running and around like a rat in a maze. Like a rat in a maze. And he's a little bit like Buster Keaton, if you will. Um, yes. Kind of like a curious soul that doesn't really talk very much. Um, but he's he's just a bystander. And the whole scene is about him interacting with this alienating interior architecture. Exactly. Um, he's now looking outside of the glass wall. He's looking in the wrong direction. <laughs> but he's entirely lost. And, and what's, what's, what's so wonderful is that we have this privileged view from above so we can see the full scene, insides yes. and outsides of yes. cubicles, and we see where they're misaligning in space. So it's a very sort of conceptual and space, uh, spatial, very abstract condition. Yeah. It's an amazing thing to watch in so many ways. Great, great piece of cinematic comedy. Also... 1967, offices didn't look like that then. That office looks like most offices today, really, you know? I mean, that's the extraordinary thing to see this 51-year-old movie that was so kind of prescient about how offices would come to look as as cubicle farms. Well, in fact, um, also this set was entirely made, and these buildings were constructed for for this movie. And he designed it, right? He did, yeah. yeah, yeah, and he, um, and I think he saw it to every detail. It actually took a long time and it cost yeah. a lot of money, and I think yeah. it, it put him financially under. But part of what I love about that movie is the use of glass, and something that we've been thinking about for a very long time is how glass has been thought of in the 20th century from the moment in the early part of the 20th century where it was this miracle medium that where you can see through walls and you can structure buildings outside of uh, wall structures. And all of a sudden, you had this inside-outside spatial continuity, whereas post-war, these glass buildings start to emerge everywhere, and they become the most economic way to build, um, and they become generic. And then all of a sudden, everyone that just loved being able to see through glass was all of a sudden self-conscious about being seen because it was a two-way system. So this movie also is about voyeurism. And uh, there are other properties of glass, like reflection and so forth, and they're used throughout the entire film. So he clearly had thought about all of these cerebral, whiffy, artistic (laughs) issues that you're talking about as he was putting together this idea. I totally. I mean, maybe without those words, but there are big chunks of of this film that are about looking in. Always the cameras outside of buildings, very rarely inside of spaces. So you're looking into... Domestic spaces. Yeah. You're looking into office spaces. Your uh, people are trying to communicate through glass, and they're not able to communicate. Yeah. They're not able to hear each other. There are all sorts of um, interesting reflections of places that are there or not there. And I think it's a testament to glass. I think right. it's a beautiful movie about glass. Here is another film where the architecture is integral: uh, *The Shining*, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Um, it takes place in this remote, empty mountain lodge in the off-season in the, in the American West. Uh, it's so basically a haunted house. Um, and it also has very little dialogue. So 
Go ahead. Do your voiceover thing. (laughs) So um, this is the the young boy um, that's now on his tricycle going down the corridor of um, this great uh, mountain uh, hotel. Uh, now he's in a corridor that has this wallpaper. He's going around corners. Yeah. This building is so much about corners. Hello, We're looking at the boy's face right now, and he's seeing twin girls, and my hair is standing on end. Come play with us. And the, you don't know whether the child is seeing things. Right. He exists. We're not sure about the girls. Come play with us, Daddy. We're not sure about the girls. And this is the premise of The Shining. The building actually has some memories. And now we see the twins, and they're bloodied, and they're alive or they're dead, and they're bloodied, and there's blood all over the walls, and the child is horrified. So this was made in 1980. Talk about the, the, the building. I mean, it really is, of course, it's about Jack Nicholson going crazy and ghosts mm. and so forth. But it is... It is hard to think of a movie where the place is is more of a star than yeah. than that hotel in The Shining. Yeah, it's a bit of a protagonist in the film. So you know at the beginning of the film that the family goes there um, at a time of year when there's nobody there and they're far away from everyone. And in fact, the opening scene has them driving in these winding uh, mountain roads to get there. So the remoteness is very much part of it. And the building itself and its grounds become very much a character because the character has memories and is haunted. And it's very confusing for the audience because, I, I mean, I found this an incredibly compelling film when I first saw it, incredibly scary, incredibly beautiful. And I think that the way that Kubrick merged the beauty of the cinematography and the beauty of the site with the scariness of the this unknown and the way that he... Um, structured every moment of time in every scene, he managed to build up this incredible, you know, fear and horror. Well, and another thing I just thought of now is, of course, another architectural bit is the ending, where he, Jack Torrance, is caught in this maze. Architecture gets him in the end. (laughs) And in fact, he was spatially killed by being lost in in space. So these two movies actually have a lot in common because uh, unwittingly um, I'm attracted to both, and they both happen to be about space and and the problems of of space. And and film is is And the buildings are kind of villains (laughs) in both, you know? They are. They're very active in the exposition of the story. The, the next movie on your list is a newer one from 2013, which I also adore. It's Spike Jonze's um, sci-fi AI romance called Her that stars Joaquin Phoenix with Scarlett Johansson as the Siri-like voice on his device with whom he falls in love. It is set um, very prominently in this non-specific futuristic city. So I'll play this clip and, and tell us um, what we're seeing. What are you doing? I'm just looking at the world. I'm writing a new piano piece. Oh, yeah? Can I hear it? Mm hmm. So we're seeing uh, now the main character, and he's in love with his operating system, and this is, and he's constantly talking to her, and 
hearing from her. What's this one about? She has a very seductive voice. Well, I was thinking we don't really have any photographs of us, and I thought this song could be like a photograph captures us in this moment in our lives together. So we're seeing skylights. Uh, we're in an urban space. And somehow converged L.A. and... Shanghai. They, Shanghai, <laughs> yeah. I think. And uh, it's not exactly a city we know. And, and here's a, a, a cityscape that doesn't... I mean, it could be now. It could be, I suppose, 50 years from now. Yeah. It's another alienating space. Uh, so um, it's not that far away from the truth. So Spike is dealing with a very near future. And it's not so far into the future that sci-fi typically is. But the near future is something that is very similar to what we see today. Uh, but maybe there are some details that are off. And what I loved about this film was that it was just odd enough. And there were details that were just slightly changed that were a little bit unfamiliar. And so it's that defamiliarization of the normal that I loved so much. Right. So, so one of the reasons I love this movie was that we met Spike before or while he was starting to plan it. Mm. And so uh, he started to talk about this project. And, um, and we started to talk about science fiction, and we started to talk about dystopian and utopian futures. Um, and this conversation, he says, led to some of his thinking about the film. And I was really surprised to hear that. But I think the essential uh, discussion was that whether you think about a dystopian future, which most sci-fis are, or utopian one, is it possible to not go in either direction, to have right. a more neutral approach to the near future, which is what he did? Correct. And I think one of the beautiful and poignant things is this idea of this man falling in love with a machine and that many people criticized him for that's a horrible, alienating free future. I don't really see it. I, when you watch this film, you were really involved in the character and you were involved with that machine voice. And it was just a very interesting contemplation into the possibility right. of that. I, I have always detected pretty strong parallels between uh, film directors and architects in just how you do the job. You know, it's a visual discipline. You have to command lots of people. You have to work with space. You have a big budget. They're not dissimilar jobs, do you think? I, I think you're right. Uh, I thought about that actually yeah. quite a bit. I, I think what uh, they share is um, having a big vision being able to convince a lot of people to support it, both financially and just in production. And, uh, right. and then being able to articulate that vision, being able to get people behind you um, to do their various roles right. in a collaborative effort to get to an end goal. Right. And I think that they're both the same. And they, they work against you know budget issues and time issues and all of those constraints that come with architecture. Same thing with film. Yeah. And, um, but I think the biggest analogy, and the most important one, is being able to communicate a vision that other people can stand behind, right. because you couldn't do either if you right. didn't do that. Liz Diller, I could talk the rest of the evening away with you, but we can't. Thank you very, very, very much for coming in. It has been a delight for me. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a great time to catch up on lots of things.
Liz Diller and her firm, Diller Scafidio and Renfro, have some exciting projects about to open, including a remarkable arts center called The Shed in Manhattan and, right near it, a mile-long opera that will be performed on the High Line this fall. You can find out more about those on our website, studio360.org. Coming up... When a judge ordered Richard Pryor to see a therapist, it ended up doing wonders for his stand-up act. When he came on the stage for the first time in this tour, he was bringing all this new material in which he was revisiting those parts of his past that had shaped him, some things that had, you could say, traumatized him, but it also made him into the man he became. A brilliant Richard Pryor album turns 40. You know, my grandma would discipline me. I mean, beat my ass. I deserved them, too. That's next on Studio 360. She used to beat my ass. Remember them switches you used to have to go get yourself to beat your own ass with? What a lot of people remember most about Richard Pryor is the album he made in 1982 after he accidentally set himself on fire while freebasing cocaine. Catching on fire is inspiring. They should use it for the Olympics. Because I did the 100-yard dash in about 4-6. That album, essentially the soundtrack of a big concert film, was live on the Sunset Strip. And it was a real-life Phoenix story, prior rising from the ashes and joking about the fire. I got to the hospital. You can really tell when you fucked up when the doctor goes, ah! Holy shit! Why don't we just get some coleslaw and serve this up? What is that? But that wasn't the first time Richard Pryor turned a hellacious part of his personal life into comedy. Four years earlier, after he was arrested for firing a gun at a car that his estranged wife was driving, he made an album called Wanted, Live in Concert. That album turns 40 this year, and the experts pretty much consider it Pryor at his best including the one who begins our story about the album. My name is Howie Mandel, and I like to think of myself as a comedian who does other stuff too. I remember standing there, you know, I'm just a little kid from Toronto, you know, who had done stand-up at local clubs, and I'm looking at Richard Pryor walk on stage, and the electricity in that room was palpable. I really mean I'm happy to see people that come out, especially after all the shit I've been in. An important thing to understand about this album is that it came out of a tour that, in a sense, came out of therapy sessions. I am Scott Saul, and I'm the author of the biography Becoming Richard Pryor. Those therapy sessions were mandated by a court. I remember I was going to my psychiatrist, and I, I would be rage, you know, rage. Mm-hmm. You know, and he'd be glad when I left. You know. <laughs> Don't bring the personalities back next week, Rich, please. 
I'm Elizabeth Storter Pryor. I'm one of Richard Pryor's daughters. So on New Year's Eve, when I was about 10 years old, my father was breaking up with one of his wives and ended up shooting her Mercedes as she tried to leave the property. All I did was kill a car. You thought I'd murdered somebody. I thought it was fair myself, you know. My wife was gonna leave me. I said, not in this motherfucker, you ain't. I had a magnum too, man. I shot one of them tires, boom. Tires said, ah, got good to me. I shot another one, boom. And that vodka I was drinking said, go ahead, shoot something else. Police came, my father shot the gun. That really happened. Then the police came. I went into the house. Cause they got magnums too. And they don't kill cars. They kill niggas. I mean, that was something real that he had to contend with in that moment. So he's able to take this moment that was actually a crushing moment in the family and connect it to this really public reality, which is that black people were not safe around cops. It's pretty astute, and it's scarily still relevant. And as a result of the legal action against him, he was ordered to engage in therapy sessions. And that led him to start keeping diaries and thinking a lot about his childhood. So when he came on the stage for the first time in this tour, he was bringing all this new material in which he was revisiting those parts of his past that had shaped him, some things that had, you could say, traumatized him, but it also made him into the man he became. Some of the most profound and moving and complicated and amazing material on this album comes out of that. You know, my grandma would discipline me, I mean, beat my ass. I deserved them too. She used to beat my ass. Remember them switches you used to have to go get yourself to beat your own ass with? And they had them leaves on you have to go. One of the incredible things about that track, Discipline, is that he's playing three different characters at once. He's playing his grandmother. Well, my grandma said, boy, go get me something to beat your ass with. And that would be the longest walk in the world. He's playing the child he was. Right, you'd be going in the house, that vine makes such a weird sound, and you'd be going, it make you start crying before you get in the house. Right? Mama! Mama, Mama! And then you see Richard, the performer, looking at both himself and his grandmother, thinking, like, this made me who I now am. I see them trees today. I stop the car and get out the car to kill that motherfucker. Right, I see where I say, you won't grow up, you motherfucker. He has this violence within him that he can't quite control, and he's aware of that. Everything he was talking about, if you took the humor and you took his lovability and likability out of it, it's incredibly painful. He took what could possibly be considered a tragic life or a tough life and made it funny. He was scary to talk to. Right? I say, hey, Dad, I'm going to the movie. You know, he said, say, nigga, you want to take that bass out your voice when you talk to me? I'm going to the movie if you let me, Dad. Please, I hope it's okay. 
you know, his father turns into this superhuman character who, when he punches him in the chest... And my chest just came in and wrapped around his fist and held it there. I wasn't letting that fist go. I didn't give a fuck what he did. My chest had that fist. Everywhere he moved his arm, I was hanging on It's a surreal description that makes us laugh because it's kind of wish fulfillment. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to do that. He was just beaten down by his father. He was the true consummate poster boy for a sense of humor. And the sense of humor connotates having a sense that there is humor where other people don't see it. And, you know, I noticed that there's a difference in funerals. Like, white people have funerals. They love, they dearly departed, but their funerals be different. They don't give it up easy. You know, they, they hold that shit in until they get home. Maybe they go, they faint. They get at the funeral. <laughs> <sighs> Black people let it hang out right up. He became the voice of the African-American comic. He became the voice of anybody who came from a broken home. He became the voice of anybody who has had an addiction to drugs. He became the voice of anybody who has had a bad relationship or weird relationships, you know. He moved the needle from the comic talking about his mother-in-law or how fat he is to somebody who was really talking about the real fabric of who humanity is. Because it's very hard to be sensitive about sex, man. It's scary, me. Can we take our time or something? I don't know, did I go too fast? Oh, look like I was trying to catch a train? So you wanna like, maybe we take a bath or something and talk or some shit, I don't know what to do, watch television. Maybe we don't have to fuck, I don't give a fuck, but. I'm just trying to be human with you like you are with me, okay? It was clear that these characters that he was depicting were real. This life, whether it was being brought up in the brothel or, you know, his own troubles with drug use or relationships or marriage or kids, were real. It is the album that I feel most connected to my father. I recognize the person talking. I know the stories. I was there when they happened. One of the stories on there is a little kid knocking something over, and my father does this whole rendition of the kid making up the story, and that was me. Say, who broke that? Huh? (laughs) Who broke that? I'm gonna tell you, okay? I'm not going to get no spanger, right? Okay. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Okay, I'm going to tell you anyway if I get a spanger, okay? First. First win. First. I'm going to tell you, okay? I remember being afraid when I knocked it over and that I was hesitating because I was kind of scared about what would happen. You remember when you told me not to run? So I wasn't really running, real running. But I was running a little bit, just like that. My feet were going like that, like it was looked like it was running, but it wasn't really running. Part of the reason why I enjoyed it when I first heard it 
was because I had that reflection about it that, oh, it was okay. It was funny. You know, I wasn't as in much trouble as I thought I was. So when I opened the door like that, it fell, fell down just a little bit. And it wasn't, it wasn't broke all the way so much. Okay? I said, yeah, okay, shit, if you can tell that one, fuck it. Richard Pryor was a genius of personification. I was walking in the yard and some said, don't breathe no more. Maybe the greatest example of that on this album is the track about his heart attack. I said, huh? I said, don't breathe no motherfucking more. You heard me. Okay, I won't breathe, I won't breathe, I won't breathe. And I tried to ease a little air inside of my mouth. I said, say, motherfucker, did I tell you not to breathe? You told me not to breathe, you told me not to breathe. Well, where are you going? Why are you walking? Stand still, motherfucker. Okay, I'll stand still. Get your ass down. Okay, I'm down, I'm down, I'm down. Don't hurt me, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. Shut the fuck up. You think about dying now. Yeah, yeah. Why didn't you think about that when you was eating that pork, motherfucker? It's a way, you know, that he can turn a biological process into a kind of reckoning. What did I do to deserve this? He's exploring that through this dialogue with the heart. That's when you put an emergency call in to God. Please. This is emergency. Can I talk to God? I'll have to put you on hold. And your heart gets mad if it finds out you was going behind his back trying to talk to God. Was you trying to talk to God? No, I wasn't. You was a lying motherfucker. (laughs) This album marks a huge moment in American comedy. You know, in many ways, this is the moment in Richard Pryor's life where he's at the summit of his talent. Just after this album, he'll light himself on fire. And that fire will have an enormous effect on his person, on his psychology, on his body, on his ability to perform, on his confidence. So what you're getting in this album is Richard Pryor at the peak of his powers, at the peak of his insights. And I think it brings all those different aspects of Richard Pryor's life together in an incredible aesthetic form. And my father told me that any time I saw a performer whose work I admired, I should let them know, I should tell them. We'd walk down the street and people would be like, hey, Rich, you know, out of the cars and stuff like that. And I remember asking my father if that bothered him you know, if it was too much. And he said, no, I think it would really bother me when they stop yelling out of the car. I can't go to porno movies like I used to, Jack, because people recognize my ass now. Hey, Richard Pryor! Huh? (laughs) Hey, my man, give me... Oh, never mind, bro, that's cool. No, that's freeze on the handshake, that's all. The late Richard Pryor, who died in 2005 at age 65. That piece was produced by Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio. Richard Pryor's Wanted Live In Concert was recently chosen by the Library of Congress to be part of the National Recording Registry. You can hear dozens of other stories we've done about records honored by the National Recording Registry, such as Gloria Gaynor's single I Will Survive and George Carlin's comedy album Class Clown. 
They're all on our website, studio360.org. And as long as I'm sending you to the Internet, if you subscribe to our show by podcast, you'll soon hear a new National Recording Registry segment about... Rumble, the seminal rock and roll song by Link Ray. Coming up, the poet Maya Phillips on what a rich summer it's been for African-American cinema. To be able to go to the theaters and see black life portrayed with rapping or, you know, with, with verse or in a totally odd, bizarre, cartoonish way that we have those options suddenly. Especially that genius dialogue in the movie Blind Spotting. Bruh, if you're really about that life, just to come up right here, plus three bills and none but a small thing to a giant like yourself. I said, let's make moves. You throw me that 300 right there. I'm going to put the woo wop to the rear view and less is more, you dig? That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Ain't nobody business but the town. All of the scales is digital underground. Step up, step, step up. So you know I get around, but I be right back like the cracks in the foundation. That's why we like the really excellent movie that came out this summer, Blind Spotting, deals in complex ways with complex issues of race and gentrification and policing and injustice. It is serious drama, but also very funny and charming as well. And although it's almost entirely a realistic film, it is studded in a way I've never seen before with rap and verse in small and large moments that are really central to the movie and its story. Maya Phillips is a poet who wrote about the language of blind spotting for Slate magazine, and she is here to talk with me about it and a couple of other new movies. Maya, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Instead of just letting me rant on, why don't you give our listeners a, a basic idea of what blind spotting is and is about? Sure. So it's uh, very much based in Oakland, um, very much an Oakland film. And it's about these two friends, childhood friends, played by uh, David Diggs, who's known for Hamilton, and yes. Rafael Casal, who is known in the poetry world. He did is slam. He? Yeah, yeah oh, really? he did slam. Um, so it's focusing on David's character, Colin, um, and it's the last days of his probation. And he's just trying to get through it, not violate his probation. But he sees one night um, a black man, an um, unarmed black man, get shot several times. And in the he back. is a black man. By yes, the way. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, get shot several times um, as he's running away from a white cop. So he's dealing with those in emotional ramifications throughout the movie. And then he's also just dealing with his friend, Miles, a white man who is just hot-tempered, totally crazy. And um, they're just navigating their relationship to Oakland as it's being gentrified and their own issues with race and their relationship to each other. Well, that. well, well put. <laughs> uh, and, and they've grown up together in the same neighborhood, in this mm -hmm. predominantly black neighborhood in Oakland, as did David Diggs, the actor playing Colin, and Rafael Casal, the actor playing Miles. Yep. And they do rap to each other in little fragmentary ways mm -hmm. throughout the movie, but it's not in any kind of stylized 
you know, La La Land way, right? It's totally different. Um, it's something totally unique, I think, that you have these options that are more musical style. Right. And I think it's amazing that this is this feels more true to life. Right. Let's let's play a clip of them just doing what they do. Grand opening of the new quick way. Hey. Wish I knew a quicker way. Whips is sweet getting tooth decay, all these candy cars. Look like they owned by fancy stars. But it's just a motherfucker's pulling up on the boulevard. Hey. When I was reading about this movie, I read a lot about how um, how it came to be. And they were saying that they know people like this, that this is part of the lifestyle, the part of the environment in Oakland, that they grew up in an environment where everyone they know had this awareness of language. And, you know, it wasn't in a performative way, perhaps, but it's just matter of fact that there's just this, you know, awareness of the way you speak and this awareness of rhythm and um, just in cadence. A little later, we see uh, moments when only Miles, the the white guy, is doing rap-like things, like when he's trying to sell this sailboat that they've found on one of their jobs as movers clearing out an old house. Uh, Let's... Listen to that. Bruh, is it hot or cold, though? Warm to the touch, no burn, no. What's they telling the Vin Diesel? No fingerprints, bruh. Dusty trail? Theory, it's Gucci. Does, cuz. I can't be running away, wait with some out of pocket. You gotta dig? Get burped, and I gotta peel out for the Daytona 5 double O, cuz I got the cameras tucked. Niggas got laundry, no bleach. All mamas, this was in the cut. Rebuild jug, though? What's the part two? Little sequel, bruh. Pockets is touching, so we're just trying to get it off and do a movie. Cuz, I'm gonna have to let that marinate one time. Bruh, if you're really about that life, this to come up right here. Plus, three bills are nothing but a small thing to a giant like yourself. I said, let's make moves. You throw me that 300 right there. I'm gonna put the woo wop to the rear view, and less is more, you dig? Clip the wall to the rear view? By far. Fast. Fast. What'd he say? Oh, I have no idea. He gave me $300, so this boat? Sold! Sold, motherfucker, sold! Mouthies for days, bruh. People like the way they make it feel, man. They like the bounce of that shit. Everybody listen more when you make it sound pretty. I'll tell you right now. It's hilarious. I love it. Definitely the pace with which they uh, went through the exchange. You know, it just was very fast. And just the density of colloquial languages, like just the slang in there that most of which I I had never heard of. I don't even know. They could be, you know, totally making that up. But I wondered about yes. that. Yeah. Um, what is he what is he doing? I mean, is, is that a bad thing that this white guy is speaking in this incredibly dense uh, vernacular of, of, of black neighborhoods, or is it a funny thing? I mean, it's complicated because obviously this is what he has come to know just in terms of how he grew up. Um, and this is how he relates to the world, which is definitely skewed toward a black perspective, even though he is obviously not black. But I think what becomes problematic is especially when he uses that language to make money um, because we see that in a larger context play out, you know, white people profiting off of the black experience. And, of course, yeah, that's that's a problem. So he's being Eminem, essentially. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, although he seems much more appealing than Eminem, frankly, the character. <laughs> yeah, I. that's one thing that I really loved about the movie, that he's not just a villain. He's not like the bad white not guy. We We understand him as a sympathetic character, and... It's not just him. It's it's also the way that Colin relates to him because Colin also participates in understanding him as 
part of that Black experience, how they talk to each other. So there is a moment where Colin, finally, after not being the guy who is the slick rapper, finally near the end of the film, there's this kind of extraordinary aria. And I don't want to give too much away because I, I don't want to be the, the spoiler of this. I guess we'll say that he finds himself as part of his job in the home of a cop he knows is bad and is holding this guy at gunpoint, this white cop, and this is what he starts to say. Hitting us till a headstone stuck in the mud. We stuck it out and turned us into some thugs. Got a whole city brand new and they're kicking out us. Maybe we should both break shit. Make a bust. I am both pictures. See both pictures. Don't be blind spotting me, nigga. See both pictures. Guess I'm just a little bigger than a picture playing chicken with a cliff, but I ain't never been a flincher. Black is getting hotter. I'ma be the one to bring the winter bucket. Everybody want a body of a cop to splinter. I mean, why wouldn't I dead him? He's splitting wigs for 80K a year and ain't from here. He'll miss him if he disappear. Filling up with fear, I know you feel it. I've been feeling it for years. In fact, I don't remember ever never feeling it. The one who going dummy never felt the need to run, but I've been sprinting till I limp across the finish with a gun up in my blind spot, really. Ain't too hard to figure that you probably never really felt the pressure of a nigga, but you know what? I ain't never felt the pressures of a trigger. I mean, tell me what you made of this as a poet. <laughs> well, I mean, I loved his end rhymes as a poet. But I think uh, this whole large poetic rap, whatever you want to call it, monologue, yeah. that's a point when I think it does break from reality a little bit. But I think that's important because this is the one point in the movie where Colin is able to actually speak the truth of his black experience here. You know, the whole movie, Colin's kind of trapped, you know? He's he he's in this situation where he's set up to fail. Although he's the good guy. And yeah, even to though do he's right. the good guy. Yeah. 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 Um, and finally, this confrontation kind of sets him over the edge. And, like, we finally have the platform for him to to speak as a black man. But it's, it's not even in, in a way that's necessarily real. Right. Yeah, it, it's totally stylized. So he can speak as long as he makes it sound pretty, like they say elsewhere in the movie. Oh, that's it. I hadn't even thought of that. So you're saying that this presentation, because it's so presentational and stylized finally, that that is also a different form of oppression? That he can't just speak? That he has to rap in order to be heard? I mean, yeah. That's, that's what they're talking about. Um, because... Miles has the option to use that. Right. Um, he can just elect to use the black language or he cannot. But right. for Colin, you know, we talk about, they, or they talk about in the movie, him like fitting the description, him being the kind of man that the police are going to be looking for. And in that same way, he can only speak in a true way and within the form that is falls within the expectations of like a white society. Right. Uh, Colin here uses uh, the N-word, here both to describe black man, but calls calls this white cop that as well. But in their big showdown, he he and his friend that happened just before this, uh, they have an argument that involves that very thing. You ain't got to worry about you changing up your clothes and your lifestyle. You ain't got to worry about none of that shit. You're a big black dude with fucking braids in Oakland. Nobody... Is misreading you, Colin. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, my nigga. Yeah, bruh. No, say it. That's David Diggs and Rafael Casal. Talk about what, what we're seeing and hearing here. We're talking about, again, how Miles is able to participate in the black culture. He understands them on equal planes. They came up in the same um, neighborhood. They shared their childhood. So they have a similar experience. But, you know, Colin's saying that that's not true. He's saying that he's not going to be misread in society. And and Miles is kind of jealous of Colin. Yeah, it forces him to come to terms with the fact that, you know, he does have an a level of white privilege, even even if he's from that same neighborhood. Right. He's still white. Right, right, exactly. Why was it essential, I guess, for rap to be used in this movie the way it was? Because rap is a form originated in—it was a black form, and it was commodified. And you see—you you joked about Eminem earlier, but, like, it is being used by other people. There's also the idea that rap is also a form that is— we're very aware of the aesthetic, you know? It's very much involved in this aesthetic. So we have an idea of a black man who is a rapper, and that is packaged and it's sold. And, right. you know, it just seems like they're they're very well linked. Right. Um, it's a terrific movie that has, to some degree, to my unhappiness, has been eclipsed in this summer of movies by two other buzzy, tough-minded dramedies about racism and blackness in America— which is to say Spike Lee's Black Klansman and Boots Riley, Sorry to Bother You, all of which, I guess, in addition to this film, uh, uh, black and white ways of speaking are, are subjects, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In Black Klansman, you have a, based on a real story, yeah. of course, you have a black man present over the phone as a white man just to, you know, try to infiltrate the clans, a Klansman meeting. Based on this real-life Colorado Springs story that happened in the 1970s. Yeah. And then— in Sorry to Bother You, the main character begins by being able to do this cartoonish version of, of a white voice as a telemarketer, although the movie goes well beyond that premise. Yes, it, it definitely goes off into space after that. Um, blind spotting, as I say, I, I mean, to me, it's subtler and more nuanced in how it deals with politics and all these issues that they deal with in common. Yes, yes, but I... I do think that all three movies have totally different goals. Um, Like, you know, Black Klansman, it is telling a true story, even though it's fictionalized. And that is going at it at in a different kind of political bent. And Sorry to Bother You, as we said, is very outlandish. And it also focuses a lot more on— Outlandish is the right word. (laughs) Yes. It also focuses more on the intersection of, like, race and capitalism. Right. What's interesting about Sorry to Bother You is that it's not only— the matter of him using a white voice because at some point in the movie he's at a party and he's act to perform his blackness right. and that's also a thing that can happen so that's no the, the the evil white villain in that film says no rap rap yeah. which is a, which is an excruciating scene actually it yes it is um and he, because he just like goes along with the most simplistic cringeworthy you know performance of blackness that he can go for yes. um so, yeah, you encounter that as a person of color, just uh, trying to navigate all these different groups' expectations of how you should act. Yeah. As we've said, these are very different films. But does it feel like, wow, here, here's all these movies that are getting all this attention, and should we take this as some pivotal inflection point for what 
American cinema can do when it deals with race? I I mean, I think so. I What's really great for me when I'm watching it as a black person is that it really opens the door for different ways to talk about blackness um, because— you know, before there was, like, the black movie and then there was, like, the handful of black actors who you'd see in all the films. And, you know, that's not a comprehensive look of blackness. It's just, you know, it's very singular. And to be able to go to the theaters and see, like, black life portrayed, you know, with rapping or, you know, with with verse or in a totally odd, bizarre, cartoonish way, sorry to bother you, yes. that, that we have those options suddenly yeah. where— white audiences always had. Correct. I was struck by your piece about this film, which made me really want to see it, and I'm very glad I did, and that we got to talk about it. So thank you. Thank you for having me again. You can find more of Maya's takes on film and culture at Slate.com. And as you hear me say here every week, Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Which means that's it for this episode. Almost. Because I need to say bye for now to Whitney Jones, who has been engineering our show for a few months, temporarily, indispensably, and beautifully. You're bound to hear Whitney's reporting and producing on upcoming shows because Studio 360 is kind of like the Hotel California. You can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by... Tommy Bazarian. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. I'm Kurt Anderson. He's a little bit like a curious soul that doesn't really talk very much. He's just a bystander. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Tired of all the winning? Well, who's an EGOT? EGOT is not a person, TJ. It's a goal. It stands for Emmy, a Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. At this year's upcoming Emmy Awards, three nominees who've already got GOTs have a shot at becoming EGOTs. And we'll hear from a few of that pantheon next time on Studio 360.